This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, His Holiness Swami Vidya D. Shananda. He is a traditional monk uh, from the Jiri monastic order who reveals to us Himalayan tradition of Vedic wisdom based on the Sanskrit heritage. He focuses both on great scholarship and direct experience from yogic practices. He also heads up the Self-Inquiry Life Fellowship. Uh, Swami, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show and speak with us today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I was looking at the Spirit Matters um, uh, <coughs> portfolio, and I find that each one of you have more than 45 years of experience in this common field of interest amongst us. So that uh, adds up to 90 years, which is more than what I'm supposed to live in this body. So I feel like, I feel like in this, um, with this esoteric math calculation of 90 years plus, you have an undue advantage in this interview. <laughs> well, but we will, not, uh, we will not take into account past lives. <laughs> Uh, Swamiji, um, let me begin with a a question I I, I would just like you to uh, uh, explain to to some of our listeners. Um, uh, Most of our listeners, if they're familiar with the the Giri uh, order of monks, um, it's because of uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, The person who uh, initiated you into the tradition uh, who ordained you was a Swami Hari Harananda, who spent a lot of time in America, but uh, most people don't know about. So perhaps you could say something about him and the lineage. Yes. <clears throat> Let me first start by saying that the Giri order uh, comes into picture because it's one of the ten orders that uh, Adi Shankaracharya, the first one who uh, systematized the monastic branches in and around 500 BC uh, or BCE. And uh, so from that time, the monasticism and monkhood traditions were there before that, but he restructured them into 10 monastic orders, and Giri is one of them. So, um, and when Priyanath Karar, um, which is, who is later known as Sri Yukteswar Giri, uh, when he met Shyamacharan Lahiri Mahashai, um, he was uh, initiated into the householder Kriya Yoga practice as the meditation practice, but then he, later on, once his family duties uh, got over, he took monkhood into Giri order. So he became Sri Yukteswar Giri, from Gorakhpur um, a tradition in Uttar Pradesh in India. So once he became Sri Yukteswar Giri, his disciples who took monkhood from him all were Giri orders. So Swami Yogananda Giri, later on we know him as Paramahamsa Yogananda. Then Swami Hariharananda Giri, Swami Satyananda Giri, Swami Bhavananda Giri, Swami Paramananda Giri, um, so and so forth. There are several disciples of Sri Yukteswar who took uh, monkhood. Swami Hariharananda in physical age is uh, 19 years younger than Paramahamsa Yogananda. Uh, he 
took his ordination, monastic ordination in 1959 from Bharati Krishna Tita in Puri, um, where Sri Yukteswarji has a presence, and then came over to United States in 1974. Actually, from 75 onwards, he started coming regularly, but 74 he came out of India. And and in 1977, Swami Hariharanandagiri established a presence in the United States. He never really stayed for long periods of time. He was touring and going back to India and the state of Orissa. And he spent the uh, last five years of his time in this country and actually um, closed his earthly life in this country and was taken to India after his passing in 2002. So that's how Swami Hariharanandagiri um, used to come and go and and from 1975, and I think I believe 1977 is when he started his formal presence in the East Coast. And so along with Yogananda, Paramahamsa Yogananda-ji, uh, there is Swami Satyananda, who was two years younger, and then many other householder disciples as well as monastic disciples. Monastic disciples mainly from Swami Sri Jukteswar, who decided to preserve these practices um, amongst monks because he thought that it may not survive the time, uh, the tide of time in the coming years. So he decided to initiate. Um, many of his monk disciples into Kriya Yoga and to preserve the techniques. But there are lots of other householder disciples who not only are from Swami Sri Jukteswargiri's uh, lineage, but also from Shamacharan Lahiri Mahasaya who had many, many householder disciples. Some of them are still alive. Those mm. branches are still surviving mm. in India. Swamiji, mm. uh, I had a question. Uh, Often I, I hear the expression Vedic monk. Other times I hear Hindu monk, uh, Vedic knowledge, Hindu knowledge. What's the relationship between those two terms, Vedic and Hindu? Is, there, is it the same or is there a differentiation? Uh, the differentiation is based on whether you are, want to be philosophically correct or not because the term Hindu is not there in Sanskrit literature. Mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it is not written in any of the standard literature that you would consider to be authentic reference. And it was more of Sindhu, those who are on the other side of Sindhu were termed Hindu, Sa became Ha, and uh, more by the Persian uh, diaspora, they started calling Hindu. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, those who are traditional and more Sanskritic uh, bound, more into Sanskrit tradition, they do not use the term Hindu. Another reason is historicity. The Vedic um, culture and the Vedic civilization is considered, according to Sanskrit tradition, to be in continuous existence for the last 15,000 years, including at the time when the last glacial recension happened <coughs> because Himalayan mountains shielded the southern part of Himalaya from mm -hmm. the traditional weather patterns. So as a result, the Vedic word links us to the original uh, historical context of Indic civilization, which the term Hindu doesn't. So those who are more into accuracy and correctness and more uh, adhering to Sanskrit 
tradition, they do not like using the word Hindu, which kind of also refers to more like an external worship, temple worship, rather than giving the complete um, spiritual um, uh, kind of paradigm of what Sanskrit entails. And this is why the word Vedic is a mm-hmm. little bit better in definitely we don't, monks don't use the word Hindu in any kind of writing. Mm-hmm. It could be a colloquial term. I mean, I'd, I would not take offense if somebody says you are a Hindu monk, but I personally, in my uh, references, discourses, and erudite scholarship, I would not use that word. I would use the word Veda and Vedic. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> Thanks for clarifying that, Swami. A lot of people are get confused between the use of those two terms and they're often used interchangeably um if i could ask you uh, to clarify one other thing um earlier you made reference to um adi shankara and a lot of people know about uh, who shankara was but not very well but um when people who do know about him think uh, of him as having lived uh, around the eighth century um A.D. Uh, in uh, um, and you you refer to him as being of the fifth century B.C.E. Uh, I'm wondering if you could clarify that. Is there some uh, uh, yes, uncertainty uh, about his the time of his uh, where he was uh, on on the planet? Yeah. Um, without getting into the uh, political landscape of India and what happened in the last century, last two centuries. And uh, British Indology is not completely comprehensive because many of those Indological references were made by um, scholars who actually never went to India. Mm. Uh, for example, I'm not aware that Max Muller actually went to India. No, he never did. So as a result, yeah. British Indology um, has a piecemeal approach which does not create a coherent picture. Uh, the one who is referred to as 788 AD is actually Abhinava Shankara. He was, in every respect and scholarship, almost like Shank- Adi Shankaracharya, but he's Abhinava Shankara, as means like a duplicate, mm. um, as if like the original. So he's not the original. The original Shankaracharya is 509 BC, lived 32 years. And we have not only monastic records of his discipleship and lineages in four of the Mats, including the Himalayan monasteries, but we also have other historical references. For example, he went to a village in near Bangalore, which is in Karnataka, southern India. Bangalore is a very well-known city. And there, the villagers welcomed him, and they erected a very special um, uh, kind of iron pillar. The iron has not rusted because they mixed it with some, they treated it, and it's like an alloy. And when the dating was done on that alloy, it came out came out to be the uh, around 500 BC. So uh, all other historical references, where if you actually take empirical evidence of Adi Shankara's travels in India, they all add up to the original time frame that the Sanskrit literature tells rather Mm -hmm. than the 788 AD. Um, But there was a person who was like Sankaracharya at that time in his lineage, and therefore there is, it adds to the confusion. How interesting. See, uh, Swamiji, uh, I wanted uh, to get clarification. My understanding is uh, that uh, a Vedic monk like yourself 
they have the responsibility first to to go inward and uh, in deep meditation and and develop uh, uh, their their consciousness and also to protect protect the knowledge from their lineage that 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 they preserve the knowledge they've received from their tradition. Is it also a, a part of the responsibility of a Vedic monk in your tradition to uh, co- uh, share this knowledge that comes from your lineage with people in the world, like us, like like uh, like you do in the West? Uh, is that also part of the uh, the traditional responsibility? Uh, yes, if I can um, take a few moments to backtrack. Um, Please. Um, absolutely. Um, I when I was. Um, um, tracked um, in my family. There was prediction that I would be retreating into Himalayan mountains in this life and not come down and I will be continuing my yogic lifestyle and go into deep uh, meditation in the Himalayan caves. But there was also a prediction that there is a possibility that if there is an ordination that I could come abroad and teach. So as a result, my family, with uh, under um, uh, counseling, they decided to train me accordingly. I was a, I was assigned an English teacher at the very early ages, and and also learned um, a little bit of other lang- European languages and uh, multiple languages in India, in addition to Sanskrit, because of this kind of prediction. So then, um, once um, I was ordained, and I met in 2000 with my monastic council and we all met and we recognized each other's role we formed i became part of a monastic council formally in 2000 until then i was kind of training um, back and forth and uh, and then once we uh, became a formalized monastic council in 2001 we decided that um, we would do a particular kind of study. So I went to Himalaya. I started doing the sutra meditation, just like you said, that um, without the sutra meditation, without um, deep rumination techniques and deep absorption, the ultimate statements of truth cannot be realized. So once I did that, then both from the monastic council and from the higher powers, there was kind of, I was sent as a head of mission uh, to the West to establish a particular stream of our Vedic learning and and share and teach some of the householder meditation practices, which is from Himalaya, uh, the Kriya system of meditation, which has many branches, and to the householder tradition. But I was also sent as head of mission to safeguard uh, which means preserve and disseminate certain aspects of original Sanskrit knowledge base, indigenous knowledge, um, through publications and through some teaching and through genuine nonprofit uh, work. So the nonprofit concept was built in with the uh, mission, and I was sent on behalf of monastic council, which are many monks actually. Although four to five monks run the whole operation, we are actually close to ten monks. So I was chosen because of my English training and ability to translate Sanskrit into English, which was key in determining mm-hmm. who should really lead the mission. So I came over. Yes, I do teach um, householders and yearning seekers, but it is up to the seekers. So we don't 
since fame, seeking fame is counter to the monastic ethos and the monastic council's function, we kind of establish the momentum and do the uh, deep work, publication work and translation and some thorough teaching of meditation and philosophy. And then the seekers come, but we don't kind of um, promote ourselves in a way uh, like a regular organization. We, we kind of wait for the spiritual momentum to gather and bring the right seekers on the path. Very good. Um, Swami, I'd love to uh, have the listeners uh, know more about some of the preservation work that you're engaged in. <clears throat> I, I know that your order in uh, Varanasi, what used to be Benares, is um, uh, heavily involved in the preservation of Vedic texts. You also are involved in uh, something uh, you call uh, the... Um, uh, safeguarding the holistic learning uh, uh, it has to do with um, uh, training uh, young students could you tell us about the the schools and the, and the preservation and what you mean by holistic learning yes uh, so we in this nonprofit uh, we have two kind of mainstreams one is the meditation and spiritual philosophy curriculum which is actually a curriculum which comes from our uh, system of learning in India, and the other is the legacy projects that we offer back to the community. Now, we determined when I came here, I found out um, that without a property and a lot of establishment help and a lot of support, it would be very difficult to establish the schooling system that I'm a product of. And or our monks are a product of. So what we did was we said, well, let's preserve at the source uh, the, Vedic, uh, the whole brain learning, accelerated learning method, because they were already running in our monasteries in India. But we will take the projects and the results of those publications and the concepts of learning as it is applicable to uh, safeguard and preserve and disseminate in in uh, starting with California and then expand it to the country and then we'll see what happens um, if it goes to wherever English is accepted as a first or second language that's good if not at least in America and Canada we can establish so we have curriculum uh, the Vedic learning curriculum is what defines the Hansa Veda's name. Hansa Veda Sangha is actually the whole brain curriculum. So what we do is um, the perception-conception-based approach in learning. So we have the conceptual part, the right brain lateral thinking integrated with the left brain. And so this is a very old traditional learning system that got preserved in monasteries and some temples. And we have children's schools where they come. Uh, sometimes they come before age eight, but we don't like taking them, admitting them before age of eight. And from eight to nine to ten onwards, they stay with us depending on the number of years and what coursework they will do. Uh, they stay all the way into their late teens or 20s. Some of them study even after their marriage. Uh, we don't discourage uh, marriage. We actually uh, help them to settle in life. But those who select few who show the signs of um, monasticism and actually have a very clear 
direction we led, let them take the monastic vows, but that's very few. So we have, um, I, along with other monks, we run these traditional schools. It, it is not co-ed. It's the women and men are separated, and the women's schools are in different areas, and the men's schools is what I am directly connected with uh, because I'm also a curriculum um, advisor. And we run those schools in our monasteries. We have between 60 to 100 per campus. Um, Varanasi is the headquarters of running all of this curricula, but we are yet to start the schooling in Varanasi. We are going to start two branches of the original Vedic intonated chanting and memorization techniques with the whole brain approach uh, called Paipalada Shaka and Samaveda Rana Yaniya Shaka, two branches, 10 students each. They are all boarding residential schools because if they come and go, they get distracted because they are, after all, young children, and the parents come and see them. So it's a traditional boarding school where Mm -hmm. we teach the whole brain learning with the body. So they move their hands, crisscross the hands, they replicate the learning. They have special kind of fermented food and indigenous cow milk. Um, They have different kind of yoga exercises. They learn the values by doing it. We don't provide any linear instruction in their teaching. They're Mm -hmm. all nonlinear methods of learning where they actually participate themselves to learn the embedded value in it. So there is no direct linear instruction saying don't do this or don't do that. So this is the old traditional learning, and it's still surviving. I am overseeing uh, anywhere it varies, um, 400 to 600 students along with other monks in different campuses in India. (laughs) But what we take here, what we do in this nonprofit is we take, we cannot start those schools here because, first of all, um, getting children dedicated uh, where parents are giving them up for boarding school to this kind of learning is cannot be in one generation. It will take generations to create something like that. But we take the principles of it and create projects and principles uh, based on those principles and create projects. So our publications of art heritage um, vintage images and restoration of art is based on those nonlinear principles <laughs> that are in the whole holistic learning in India. Right. Swamiji, uh, this is fascinating. My own background is in education. And uh, I, I'm sure that there, are, like you said, it might take generations to get the full program in the West, but there are aspects of uh, what you're doing that certainly could be implemented. And there are many progressive educators in America looking for just what you are offering, uh, this type of education. Uh, Has that been done or can that be done where somebody uh, can, from the West, could study what you're doing and take aspects of it and integrate it into the uh, educational programs they already have? Um, Absolutely. Uh, It doesn't have to be Sanskrit language, although Sanskrit has a very interesting way of making one learn through the hearing ability rather than the visual Mm -hmm. ability. So it helps the memorization aspects because when we are so visual, we tend to flicker and and uh, uh, the visual impressions are overloading. So some we are safeguarding the uh, listening aspect in the learning, so so that they can they can use their hands and legs and and coordinated movements to memorize. But the principles are already in use in various curricula in the West. Mm-hmm. They are in different kinds of 
um, uh, whole brain learning. We may not call them whole brain learning, but they are already in use, and absolutely they can be used. In fact, um, I use them in my training for those who come to learn meditation. Um, in the Kriya system of meditation, it is actually based on a whole brain learning system, especially the mantra applications use finger snapping, crisscrossing the hands, mm-hmm. touching the opposite sides of the shoulders while you are reciting with the eyes closed or the eyes open. So certain concepts of this whole brain learning are already in use, not only in our nonprofit, but we see that in children's schooling also, uh, Rudolf Steiner and some of the other kinds of schooling, um, they are probably not public schooling, but in private yeah. schools, they are already in use. Yeah, I should say my, uh, my daughter, who's now 34, uh, when she was growing up, she went to a school where she studied Sanskrit and had meditation. So, uh, and I think it helped her very, very much uh, in all aspects of her life. Yes, it allows um, uh, definitely a holistic learning and a, and a, a, a it doesn't ignore the right brain faculties mm-hmm. of conception. So it integrates and then we see that the values are, <coughs> the emotional maturity from the value-based learning is much more. Mm-hmm. And so they are able to make their own decisions a lot better because of this emotional maturity. Very interesting. Swami, I have a, a philosophical question for you. In the uh, biographical material they sent us for you, it, it mentions that um, um, that you combine what the cardinal philosophies of the ancient Sanskrit heritage, Vedanta, Yoga, and Samkhya. Um, a lot of people, especially scholars in the West, um, treat Samkhya and Vedanta especially, or the different systems, as if they were separate and apart from one another. And um, Samkhya and Vedanta are often presented as uh, in conflict. Simplistically, you know, they think one is dual and one is non-dual. Can you explain your uh, interpretation of these systems and the integration of them that you feature? Yes, that's actually... uh what I'm doing in my discourses is the spiritual philosophy discourses are uh, about philosophy of life based on experience. So um, what we are trained in is that we are sent to Himalaya, um, Himalayan caves and hutments in the middle to higher Himalaya is to actually meditate on the sutra. Now between Sankhya, Yoga and Vedanta, if you take not the verses, which is sloka, I'm not talking about the main um, Vedanta, Upanishads, and the Veda Mantra, but there is also the Brahma Sutra, which is the sutra-based um, uh, dissemination of what is the core context of entire Vedanta philosophy that is written by sage Vyasa, 540 sutra. So when we combine all the sutra, it comes to about 826 sutra. So Our specialization in our monastic tradition is that we are sent to the caves to actually ruminate and have the sutra unraveled as an experiential learning. So when we come down from the cave, each sutra will have to match everybody else's meditative realization. If we don't, that means we are not able to reproduce, so we have to go back. So contrary to this thing, the the um, idea that uh, spirituality does not have validation because of reproducibility. 
it's opposite. We go and meditate on the sutra and then we come back into what we known as Shastrartha, where the monks get together and we have a debate to see whether we have interpreted the sutra through our revelation in the heart the, the correct way. If everybody is not agreeing, that means our realization is imperfect. So the sutra between Vedanta, Sankhya, and Yoga add up to about 825, 826 to be more accurate. So these 800 sutras have to be meditated upon in the caves and, and kind of unraveled because sutra is tightly bound and it has a spiraling logic. So you have to kind of unravel the knots and, uh, and realize them in an experience through meditation. And so our speciality uh, in our lineages of monastic branches uh, is that we specialize in seamless integration, even though these three philosophies are from three different sages, we seamlessly uh, integrate them and corroborate that truth cannot be uh, truth can be realized multiple ways, and there are many paths to attain the truth. But you cannot have uh, divergent uh, realization of the ultimate principle. So um, and so, I am able. I am one of those monastic lineages who have the onus, if you want to use that word, I wouldn't say burden, but I have, I bear the onus of uh, seamlessly explaining that all three philosophies are, lead to give mm -hmm. us a coherent picture. Uh, so it is scholarly, it is erudite scholarship because you have to know Sanskrit language and without it, without the rumination technique of vibrating the Sanskrit sounds, you cannot unravel the sutra, but it's just not simply logic and scholarship. It's also a meditative understanding through meditation using a rumination method and in solitude, in personal retreat. And so I am, that's one of my niche here in this nonprofit is that the discourses um, create the balance between Sankhya, Vedanta, and Yoga. And I'm able to um, integrate them. I have delivered lectures in various forums. Um, and I'm creating a library of these discourses. Um, unfortunately, when it gets very philosophical, you cannot deliver it into um, regu regular in general public discourses, but um, I'm creating a library of these interpretations in English from the original Sanskrit Sutra, which will give us a coherent picture. And I feel that one of the reasons I was selected is to be able to articulate in English a coherent picture of these mm -hmm. three philosophies. Uh, Swamiji, I, I wanted to uh, ask you if somebody is listening to your talk now and is inspired for inner development, which is ultimately what you're uh, speaking about, and they're a householder, they're living in the States, how, how do they pursue this? What, what's their next step? I know you, you give workshops, you're going to be giving a workshop soon. This is February now when we're doing this taping in April on Pranayam. Uh, tell us about uh, what you would recommend to somebody who wanted to pursue this knowledge, uh, who really has no background, no experience in that to this point. Okay. 
Um, very good question. So we, other than what we offer as legacy projects, which is two kinds, fellowship archives and heritage revival, which which are our projects, non-profit projects mm-hmm. for the community, where we preserve and uh, assign Sanskrit historicity and the Sanskrit lore to vintage images and and sacred art restoration and music um, based on Samaveda and original chanting tradition. We have a meditation curriculum where Beyond the holistic learning concepts and spiritual philosophy discourses, we have stepwise um, uh, Ayurvedic wellness, um, basic Himalayan yoga with yoga vinyasa, which is movement with breath. Uh, So you synchronize the movement, which is led by the breathing. Then the advanced pranayama, where the how to breathe correctly from the bladder rather than up in the chest. So have the control of the breath done from the core, what we call as core, which is uh, below the navel. And so that breath work, which is the pranayama techniques, which is higher level than yoga vinyasa, the movement exercises. And then we have teachings of mindfulness, um, how to sit in meditation and observe and and face yourself and release the feelings and remove the emotional disturbance. So those teachings and then beyond that is the initiated, regimented, structured meditation practice, which is like a daily practice where one then takes a commitment to have a daily meditation practice, which is typically we recommend minimum one hour, but the practices can be done for two hours. And some of the advanced meditators are doing two and a half hours. Uh, mm-hmm. daily and they somehow integrate and make that the cornerstone of their daily routine so it's stepwise so one is the holistic learning concept so those who are only wanting to learn in a particular way uh, then there is the spiritual philosophy discourses which is basically yoga sankhya and vedanta and then ayurvedic wellness um, then yoga vinyasa himalayan yoga concepts of movement with the breath for fitness and uh, something beyond wellness. Mm-hmm. Then we have the pranayama breathing. So now we are talking about um, higher states of awareness where you can actually experience silence uh, after profound breath work. Then mindfulness where you face yourself, watch yourself, you know how to remove emotional disturbance and begin to have experience of timelessness. And then the structured meditation practice. So they're all in a curricula of sequence so based on where the seeker is and what their inclination mm-hmm. is, we we guide them to kind of join the curriculum at a particular point. And so it's all very structured based on the Sanskrit system. We only learn based on Sanskrit system. I didn't tell you in the beginning, I was actually given by my uh, parents, my biological parents, uh, as a vow to safeguard the Sanskrit system rather than create something of my own. So um, my involvement with the monastic council is perfect because I will not be able to ever do anything of my own liking. I only teach what is mm-hmm. um, what is what is actually proven to be time-honored based on the Sanskrit system. So I would, our meditation techniques always bear a relevance to a particular sutra or a particular verse in Sanskrit. It cannot be made up. Right. Very good. Speaking of which, uh, Swami, before we go, um, I know you have, um, we're recording this on February 17th. It'll uh, 
probably be available uh, in the next couple of weeks. And you have a uh, pranayama workshop coming up in Southern California in, in April. Perhaps you'd like to tell the listeners about it. Yes, that actually um, is the, uh, I wouldn't say completely beginner level. It teaches how to breathe the Ujjayi method, how to do the internal breathing. So, but it also adds some portions of intermediate level. So it's on two mornings on April 2nd and 3rd, which is a weekend. And so those who are aware of the word pranayama and have had some uh, exposure to the value of uh, breathing in a particular way are absolutely welcome. A beginner is welcome, but there will be some intermediate level and introduce, otherwise there is no challenge. And I teach how to breathe correctly according to the Himalayan system where we have the core, meaning the point where maximum heat can be inserted into the body, which is below the belly button, kind of on the aligned with the top of the um, the hip bone, which juts out from the two sides. So it's about two inches, two and a half inches below the belly button is the core. So we teach how to control the breath from the bladder, which is the front of the bladder, and that allows us to breathe correctly, and then we teach internal breathing, and then we use eight techniques um, from the yoga literature, yoga sutra, and, and Udgita, and then Nadi Shuddhi, Somasara, Agnisara, Murcha, and Samtit Sambandha, the locks to create balance. So these are some of the, based on Ujjayi method, the breath of victory, which allows us to internalize the breath, control the breath by, um, at the level of the glottis, um, behind the throat and also direct the breath <clears throat> as an energy uh, inside the body. So these techniques are taught in that Pranayama workshop, which is two mornings, 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. on uh, Saturday and Sunday, second and third. Once we have eaten, taken our main meal, we cannot really do these techniques very right. effortlessly. So it's only in the morning. And to it's it's one it's very affordable student pricing because the idea is to disseminate and to inquire about the details there is a very simple registration um, link it's called Hansa Yogin H A N S A Y O G I N Hansa Yogin two zero one six two thousand sixteen dot eventbrite dot com the bright is B R I T E eventbrite is a very well known Mm -hmm. service provider of registration. So it's hansayogin2016.eventbrite.com, which has all the details of how the the breath work um, is structured, how the Pranayama workshop is going to be taught on those two mornings. Swamiji, thank you so very much for your time. And uh, we'll uh, uh, get uh, your website up on, on our podcast site. Uh, any other final points, uh, Phil, that you want to bring up? No, I want to thank Swami for taking the time and wish him all the great success with his important work. Thank you. I wanted to say that our main website is under reconstruction. Right now there is a placeholder website, but the main website is in the works. But if our publications of this holistic learning and whole brain learning, accelerated learning publication stream is publications.hansavedas. H-A-N-S-A-V-E-D-A-S dot org, publications.hansavedas.org. 
has the publications uh, strategy of the, the which has the hallmark of this holistic Vedic learning. Right. And, and I'm sure they so can, they can Google your name and they will be led to the proper right. place. Or contact us and we'll put them directly yeah. in touch with you. Uh, Swamiji, thank you so very, very much for your time. Thank you for, thank you for this time. It was wonderful to speak to both of you right. and your audience. Okay, thank you.